All right, so let's, let's close this section of the service by reading Luke 2, chapter, verses 15 through 20, excuse me. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It wasn't supposed to happen like this. It wasn't supposed to happen like this. I, I, I have to think that that's the thought that was going through Mary's mind as she was in that filthy cave fighting through another contraction with all of the animals gathered around. I mean, I'm sure Mary had spent a lot of time thinking about what this moment would be like. I mean, from the time that the angel had announced to her that she was going to bear a son, I'm sure she imagined, what is that moment of, of giving birth going to be like? And I'm sure she imagined it with, with family and friends nearby encouraging, neighbors bringing meals, just as they had done with Zachariah and Elizabeth when John was born. I'm sure she hadn't pictured it like this. But tonight, she was nowhere near home. There was no family gathered around. It was just her and Joseph and the animals. She would have done this. She would have planned this so differently. I mean, so would we, wouldn't we? <laughs> I mean, for, for many of us, whether or not we consider ourselves Christians or churchgoers, we're so familiar with the story of Jesus' birth that, that we kind of miss the fact that it's kind of a, a disaster from a human perspective. I mean, think about it. I mean, we make the story sort of cute with the precious moments, nativity scene, but even by first century standards, this birth was a disaster. I mean, even for us today in 21st century modern medicine, the idea of, of going into labor when you're out of town, away from your doctor and hospital and family, it's, it's not the way you want it to happen. This is why doctors don't let you travel in the final weeks of pregnancy. But I guess Caesar hadn't gotten the memo and there were no exceptions in the census for pregnant women. And so giving birth in a cave would have been a disaster for any family, for any child. But this is the Son of God being born. I mean, we would have done it so differently, wouldn't we? But this isn't our story. This is God's story. And we would have done it so differently, but he did it perfectly. For us, and Christmas is all about different kinds of things, right? But I mean, what is the story of Christmas really about? I mean, if you read the Wall Street Journal or listen to Marketplace on NPR, I mean, Christmas is primarily about the, the boom or the bust of the American economy, right? How much are consumers spending this year compared to last year? Um, if you watch uh, Lifetime, Christmas is primarily about being with and celebrating your family. If you read Dickens, Christmas is about rediscovering the, the spirit of Christmas, 
If you watch Elf, <laughs> Christmas is about believing in the impossible, even the ridiculous, because we've lost our sense of wonder as adults. If you watch the political news, it's always about, right, who still says Merry Christmas versus Happy Holidays. But the story of Christmas according to Luke has nothing to do with any of that stuff, not even a little bit. Christmas for Luke is about facts, historical events. He says a a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And really, the whole Christian faith works this way. I mean, the Gospels, they claim to be history, the same kind of history that you had to memorize for your finals. And C.S. Lewis, the Oxford Don, um, we think about him oftentimes as a, a writer of Christian literature, but his area of expertise was medieval and Renaissance literature. That was what, what he taught both at Oxford and Cambridge. And he'd grown up in the Church of England, but had left the faith. And, and later, after World War I, when he was coming back to faith and, and studying the Gospels, he realized they were a different kind of literature. And this is what he writes about the Gospels. Lewis says, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myth all of my life. I know what they are like. And I know that the Gospels, I know that they are not one of them. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else someone unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. He says, if it is untrue, if the gospel is untrue, it must be a narrative of that kind. And I love this kind of, you can hear him saying it with sort of his British wit, the reader who doesn't see this simply has not learned to read. Luke roots the story in history, in Augustus, Quirinius, tax law, And he does this because he wants the story to confront us. Now, some of you might be thinking here, now, but isn't this, Bill, one of the places where Luke Luke gets his facts wrong? I mean, don't we all know from reading Josephus that Quirinius wasn't the governor of Syria during the census? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, Because there's two things to note here. First, the grammar of this verse is really tricky. And, and it could legitimately um, and easily be translated, this is the census before Quirinius was governor. That's a very legitimate translation of the text. So it could just be a grammatical issue. Um, but second, the term governor isn't a precise term. It's, it's actually a very general term for ruler or administrator. And therefore, it could be that Quirinius was simply administering the census, not, not serving in the post of prefect over Syria during this time. You see, whenever someone claims to present facts... They're daring you to check them out. In this way, facts are more prickly than stories. Stories could warm your heart, right? But, and, and if Christmas were just a, a story, we could sort of say, oh, this is kind of a nice story and move on, which is honestly a lot of times what we do, even as Christians. But facts beg to differ. Facts get in your face and they say, do you believe this or not? God born in a manger to a virgin in Bethlehem who died for the sins of the world. And we would have done it so differently. This isn't the story we would have made up if we were making up stories like this. Luke confronts us with the facts. Something happened. We would have done it so differently, but God did it perfectly. And when we look at these first 20 verses of Luke chapter 2, 
we see just how upside down, how different God's way is. We see that we love power, but God chooses weakness. And we love riches, but God chooses poverty. We love fame, but God chooses obscurity. So we're going to see in this story that, that he chooses obscurity, he chooses poverty, he chooses weakness. We would have done it differently because we love power, but God chooses weakness. If we were living in the first century and we were looking to choose a ruler, we would have chosen Caesar over a baby. And Luke is intentional here in mentioning Caesar Augustus. Uh, Augustus was, at the time of Jesus' birth, one of the most powerful people in the world. And actually, up until this point, he was one of the most powerful people ever in human history in terms of the amount of the world that he controlled. Everyone in the world knew who the most important person was. Without a doubt, anyone would have said Caesar. Everyone in the world knew this was true. And in fact, this is why Luke mentions him here. You see, when Augustus was born, he was born and hailed as a god. The language of peace on earth was used when he was born. His arrival of a savior, they said, of good news. It's the exact same language that the angels used to describe Jesus' birth. And just as Jesus gets a choir of angels, it was also uh, known that Augustus had levied a tax to hire a choir to perpetually sing his praises. So don't miss the contrast between Augustus and Jesus. Luke is setting these two up in juxtaposition for us. And the impetus for the whole Christian story, or Christmas story here, is Caesar, right? In all of his glory and power, he levies attacks on the entire known world, and everyone has to go back to their ancestral town and for Joseph, that was Bethlehem, the home of his ancestor David. Again, Luke really wants us to note the connection to David. Augustus lifts his finger in Rome, the center of power, 1,500 miles away, and in an obscure province that he will never visit, a poor young couple he will never know make a hazardous journey to a backwater city in the middle of nowhere. And now because everyone and their family and they're all now gathered in Bethlehem. Every, the place is packed. And there's no room in the inn for them. And so this young couple have a baby outside in the manger. And it's my hunch that in Bethlehem that night, everyone is talking about the tax, right? Everybody's talking about Caesar, talking about politics, talking about economics and how unjust this tax is. Maybe dreading that they're going to see Uncle Levi or Aunt Esther or how they bumped into that friend from high school. It's just a bummer to have to come back to Bethlehem. And I mean, I don't know for sure, but I doubt what anyone was talking about that night was a baby being born in a stable, in a cave, behind an inn. I mean, that was nothing compared with the geopolitical issues, the injustice of Caesar stealing our money, Right? So Caesar or a baby, I mean, nobody is weaker than a newborn. If you've held a new baby, you just feel the fragility, don't you? And yet this baby is born to be king, 
born in the city of Israel's greatest king, David. And the prophets had hinted that this would be the case. Micah 5.2 says this, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, the ancient of days. But that night in Bethlehem, I doubt anyone was quoting Micah 5.2. I doubt anyone was even thinking about it. Because no king is born in a cave. Kings don't come in weakness and vulnerability. We would have done it differently. But he did it perfectly. Because we are weak, he came in weakness to save the weak. So where do you find your strength? And this is where it's important to remember that power is not a bad thing. Oftentimes we think that way, right? And it it is true that power tends to corrupt. But we all have power. The question with power is always, who is flourishing because I have power? That's always the question we have to ask. Who is flourishing because I have power? And if the answer is me alone or my group alone, then that's a problem. But power can be used to serve, to elevate, to sacrificially care for others. So where do you find your strength? In your own abilities, intelligence, planning? I mean, we can try to be in control, but, but God is the one who's orchestrating everything, right? It, it's actually, it's easy to miss this in the Christmas story, but, but think about it. Caesar, he's the epitome of control and power, and he can level attacks. But God is going to use that to change history. Caesar can order you to do something. God can use you and Caesar no matter what you do. Caesar is playing checkers. God is playing chess here. You see, God is always in the details, but don't miss him for the details. I mean, he uses tax law to save the world. So take comfort that behind all the chaos that's happening right now in our world, Christmas reminds us that God is sovereign over all of it and is working out the salvation of the world despite it. So would our prayer be, God, remind me how weak I am and that my true power, my true strength is found in you. See, Jesus, God become human, the maker and ruler of the universe became weak so that we can find our strength in him. And when you read the Gospels, Jesus doesn't actually negate our desire for power. He just completely turns it upside down. In Jesus' kingdom, the way to have power is to become the servant of all. The way to be first is to be last. The way up is down. And this is exactly what Jesus does in the incarnation. He humbles himself. And and Luke shows us this over and over again in his gospel. In in Luke chapter 18, for example, there's all these parents that are bringing children to Jesus. They want Jesus to hold these kids and and bless them. And I love the disciples at this moment. They're like, man, Jesus is way too busy for this. And they start sending kids away. The disciples are supposed to be bringing people to Jesus. Here they're, they're sending them away from Jesus. They're sending them away. But Jesus interrupts and says, let the children come to me. And then a few verses later in Luke 18, another incident happens. Jesus is on his way to Jericho, 
and there's this blind man by the side of the road, and he's screaming and crying out, Jesus, son of David, Jesus. And, and again, the crowd, the disciples are sending people away from Jesus. Like, be quiet, stop yelling. He, he doesn't quit, though. And Jesus says, come, come to me. And he heals him. See, Jesus chooses the weak. He chooses kids. He chooses the blind. Andy Crouch, in his book, Playing God, with the subtitle, Redeeming the Gift of Power, observes, over and over in the Gospels, Jesus interrupts his agenda for those who have nothing to offer him, but need everything from him. Let me read that again. Over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus interrupts his agenda for those who have nothing to offer him, but need everything from him. So where do you find your strength? See, in the Christian life, strength is paradoxically, it's found in weakness. The Apostle Paul had an ailment. We don't know what it was, but it made him weak. And he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, or excuse me, chapter 12, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Just, that, just a side note, if Paul is pleading three times and God doesn't answer his prayer, maybe sometimes we should just realize sometimes God isn't going to answer our prayers the way we like. He says, I pleaded three times with the Lord that it should leave me. But look at the response that comes from God. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you want to know true strength? Boast in your weakness. Where do you, where do you feel most weak? What do you struggle with the most? What are you most embarrassed about people knowing? Ask God to make his strength perfect in those places. Let his strength shine in those places, that he would be glorified in those places. You know, we wouldn't do it that way. We would do it so differently. But God does it perfectly. The next thing we, we see as we walk through the story is that we love riches, but God chooses poverty. Now look at verses 6 and 7 in, in Luke chapter 2. And, and while they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there's no place for them in the inn. I mean, we would have chosen a palace over a manger. I mean, let's face it, we would have chosen anywhere over a manger. I'm sure Mary would have too. So how did this happen? And it's really at this point that the, the full irony of the Christmas story starts to come into focus because it's clear that God can do anything, right? He's, he's using Caesar as though he's a, a, a plaything. He makes the Roman Empire conform to his will, that this tax is being orchestrated to bring all these pieces together. God has crafted thousands of years of history to make this moment possible. And then we read, there was no room in the inn. It's like, wait, did, did God forget to make reservations? Or, you know, he's been, what happened here? I actually felt this reality of Mary and Joseph in, in kind of a new way uh, when Rachel and I were on a road trip to Arizona this spring. We were driving out there. It's a 20-plus hour drive, and, and we had five-month-old baby Lucy with us. And we pulled into Tucumcari, New Mexico at, you know, at one, one in the morning. And we were just looking for a motel. 
And in that moment, I, I realized for the first time, this is what Mary and Joseph must have felt like. They're in this kind of strange place. It's dark. It's late. They're just looking for any place to stay. I mean, I was just looking for a reasonably safe, clean place for my wife and baby to sleep for a few hours. But Mary, she's trying to find a place to give birth. It wasn't even a Motel 6. And I can't imagine having told Rachel that night in Tukumkari that, okay, well, I guess we're just going to sleep in the parking garage of the Econo Lodge. <laughs> but that's exactly what happened to Mary. Except it wasn't a place so nice as a parking garage. And she wasn't just looking for a place to sleep. She was in labor. And when we would have chosen a palace, God chooses a manger. This family is, is so poor that they, they end up having their baby outside with, with animals. But this is really Jesus' life in a nutshell in many ways. Poor, hated, rejected. We would have done it differently, but God did it perfectly. Because we are poor, he became poor to save the poor. So where do you find your wealth? Now, as again, with power, uh, money is not inherently a bad thing. Again, Paul warns that, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But money, wealth, in and of itself, it's a good thing that makes all kinds of, of human flourishing possible. With money, the question is not how much do I have, but how much does it have me? How much do I have, but how much does it have me? Is money just money to you, or is money comfort, security, control, meaning, status, acceptance? If you're looking to money to give you those things, then, then you've subtly made money into an idol, an idol that will always demand more of you while always giving you less in return, an idol that will ultimately enslave and crush you. And, and for some of you here this morning, there is not enough money in your checking account to pay the bills at the end of this month. For others of you, there, there's more than enough money to pay the bills, but you still worry about money, right? About the economy. What's going to happen? When you have a lot, there's a lot more to lose, isn't there? So where do we find our wealth? What is your true treasure you see, if we define poverty and wealth only materially, then, then what happens is that when we have a lot, when we perceive ourselves to have a lot, we'll look down on those who have less than us. And when we have a little, we'll feel inferior. But if we define poverty spiritually, then everyone is equally poor and in need. Whether you feel like you have a lot or a little this Christmas, would your prayer be, God, remind me how poor I truly am and that my true wealth and riches are found in you. You see, there's only one person in the world who has given up everything for you. Who had unending wealth and joy and yet became poor so that you might become rich in him. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. And when we see how rich we are in Christ, it radically changes how we use and view money. Luke, in his, his sequel, he writes a, a sequel to the gospel called Acts. 
And then he describes how riots break out in the city of Ephesus when the gospel arrived there. Pastor Tim Keller explains why this happened. He writes, Christianity was spreading and causing people to turn from idols, and that affected the economy. Since the banking system, the idol makers, and the shrines were all intertwined, Christianity changed the way people spent and used their money, and that threatened the cultural status quo. We would do things so differently. God does it perfectly. So whether you are materially rich or poor, Jesus calls all people everywhere to find their true wealth in him. This actually leads us to our next observation from the text. And that is that we love fame, but God chooses obscurity. Jesus is for all people everywhere, and yet he arrives in obscurity. And really, the the press conference is also kind of a fail, at least from a human perspective. Look at verses 8 through 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. These guys were terrified. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring good news of great joy that will be for all people. Don't miss that, for all people. For unto you this day in the city of David is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those whom he is pleased. So God makes this big announcement, the Savior of the world is born. But he makes the announcement to shepherds in a field alone in the middle of the night. And and according to rabbinic sources, shepherds were considered uh, not to be trustworthy. They were despised. And so if you wanted to make a big announcement, you wouldn't go to the shepherds. Not if you wanted people to believe it. And this is kind of like, if you can imagine, Apple's doing a huge product release. This thing they've been working on, there's been rumors about it. And then they do the whole grand Apple presentation show, but the only people who are there are the, the parking lot attendants and the cleaning crew at the conference center. They don't invite any of the media. That's kind of what this moment's like. We would have done it so differently. We would have chosen the important people over the shepherds, but God does it perfectly. The angels announced this baby boy is born in obscurity in a cave outside of a crummy inn, and then he's going to be the Savior, Christ the Lord. And really, there's no higher way to talk about this child. Savior is, is really direct competition to Caesar. Christ means simply Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one. And Lord is the highest way of referring to God. And on the one hand, I mean, I think the shepherds must have been a little bit confused in this moment. Like, wait, what, he's in a cave? But on the other hand, perhaps it's the only way that shepherds would have felt welcome. I mean, well, I guess he is in a cave. I mean, he's not doing much better than we are. Let's go check it out. Because the news is for all people, even for shepherds. We would have done it differently, but God does it perfectly. Because we are the least, he becomes the least to save the least. So where do we find our significance? Where do we find our our meaning, our worth? We love fame, and we love the idea of being famous or even being close to those who are famous. 
And, and before you think you're not into fame, I mean, consider how often do you check that picture or that status update to see how many likes it has? Or, or how much of your ego is tied up in your, your follower-to-following ratio on Twitter? Now, again, fame isn't inherently bad. In fact, as people, we were made in the image of God. We were created hardwired to desire love and acceptance and even glory. But, but here's the thing. We can only satisfy our desire for glory by either glorifying ourselves or by glorying in something or someone else. And we were created to glory in Christ and to find our desire for acceptance in him. And here's what happens when we do. When you really start to find your identity and meaning in Christ, what other people think of you starts to matter a lot less. You care a lot less about who gets the credit. When you glory in Jesus, actually suddenly obscurity is no longer an issue. Because obscurity is not an impediment for God. God works in and values the small and the unnoticed significance and successes. So would our prayer be, God, remind me how obscure I am and that my true worth and identity is found in you. I mean, none of us wants to be a footnote in history, right? And yet that's actually exactly where Caesar ends up. For all of his fame, he's now known because of Jesus. And, and, and you can't deny that, right? I, most of you couldn't tell me three things about Caesar Augustus, unless you were doing your PhD in Roman history. We know how the story ends. The only thing that Caesar's really famous for in the end is that he was the emperor when Jesus was born. And we bear witness to this every time we check our calendars. A.D. means the year of our Lord. Now, Augustus did get the month of August named after him. Um, but it's in the year of our Lord. Jesus is the dividing line in history. He's the most recognizable name in the world. No one yells Caesar when they stub their toe. <laughs> we would have done it so differently. But God does it perfectly. We would have chosen power and wealth and fame, but when God comes, he comes in weakness and poverty and obscurity. But this is good news for you and me because no matter how weak or poor or, or lonely or rejected that we feel, we know that Jesus can relate. He's been there, and the good news is that he doesn't stay there. And you won't either. Because when you finally own up to your own weakness, your poverty, your obscurity, and look to Christ, what you find is strength unending. Isaiah says he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. You find riches beyond, beyond compare, because you're, you're invited again in Isaiah to come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. In Jesus, you find an identity that is unshakable. Again in Isaiah, of God's chosen people, of his chosen city, he says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? He said, mothers don't forget their children, but God says, even if a mother forgets her children, I will never forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. 
If you are in Christ, if you are part of his body, you will never be forgotten. Ever. We would have done it so differently. But God has done it perfectly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that even though we would have done it so differently,